everyone. Thank you for joining another Casework stream. Um, we are excited and thankful to be joined today by Danielle Mason. Um, she is an attorney with the Milberg Law Firm out of Alabama. And we are also joined by Rick Meadow from the Lanier Law Firm based out of Houston. Um, and we also have from Caseworks, we've got Dan Kaminali, who is our VP of Sales and Marketing. And just um, really appreciate everyone's time today. We're, we're spending some time together to connect and talk more about TALC, um, about you know the litigation in and of itself, and then some of the updates. I know I've gotten a lot of emails and questions about you know the, the recent um, decisions. And so we just thought we would have two experts on to help in um, answering some of those questions. One of the first things that everyone, of course, will want to know a little bit more about is you guys. Um, so let's start off with a, a brief introduction. Rick, if you'll tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to Mass Tort Litigation. And then, Daniel, we'd love to hear the same from you. Sure. Um, I started in Mass Tort Litigation probably mid to late 90s with Barron and Bud in their New York office. Uh, that office eventually closed and I scooted over to White's and Luxembourg and was one of the senior asbestos trial lawyers until 2004 when I convinced Mark Lanier to open up a New York office, which we did in 2004 and have been running uh, the mass torts for the Lanier law firm since 2004. So that's about 18 and a half years. Um, and I, I was on the trial team for Viox with Mark, trial prep for a lot of the other cases. And my job is to determine which mass torts we enter into, how big a commitment we make, and help guide the resolution of those mass torts. So that's my background in a nutshell. Yeah, that's awesome. And what what um, intrigued you about mass torts? It was the uh, ability or the possibility of helping a large amount of people at once versus a one-off type of firm where you do one big personal injury case or one mesothelioma case. Mass torts allow you to not only correct a wrong for more than one person, but alter public policy or protect the public. So it was, it was a combination of those factors that led me to uh, concentrate on mass torts. So interesting. I did, I did not know that that was your background and your progression from firm and how you landed at Lanier. So thanks for sharing that. Um, Danielle, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, how you ended up in mass tort and, and what intrigued you about um, this industry. Sure. Thank you, Susan and Dan, for having me on. Um, my background is out of law school. My first legal job was uh, assistant federal defender for the Middle District of Alabama. And I did that work for a little over a year when I was then recruited over to Beasley Allen and um, to join civil practice. And it just was luck of the draw that I ended up in the firm's mass tort unit. Didn't know much about it at all um, before being hired into it. And then I got into it and thought, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> then, um, came to find, uh, you know, and I agree a lot with Rick, of being able to help um, so many people that are exposed to defective products and devices and, and pharmaceutical drugs. And it's just some of the worst corporate conduct that you could ever 
imagined seeing. And, you know, that really just opened my eyes to um, how much work we have to do, um, how much there is to correct. And that is really fulfilling for someone like me who is just really rooted in trying to find justice, fight for it um, as much as we possibly can, and really affect overarching change by getting bad products off the market, um, having companies retool their design to make sure um, going forward that they're doing things that are safer for people and consumers. Yeah. Like like you said, as Rick mentioned, um, it's a way to help the mass versus, you know, just one off. Um, cases. Yeah, especially with, you know, holding a lot of the companies you mentioned accountable to, you know, the products and what they put out into the marketplace is definitely very rewarding, as, as I can imagine. So that's, that's, that's awesome, Daniel. Okay, one thing that I'd love to, um, you know, start out just kind of setting the stage for those, you know, we have attorneys that are watching these streams that are maybe, you know, heavily involved in personal injury, wanting to learn a little bit more about TALC and about the litigation. So something as basic as just telling us and giving us some feedback about what is the, the TALC and powder litigation and why is this case so important? All right. Uh, go ahead, Danielle. You can go. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, uh, let's start with what talc is. Talc is a mineral. And uh, this was something that I learned getting involved in and really had no idea where it came from. It is a mineral that is mined from the earth. And I've seen photos of how the, the men that are getting it out, it comes out in huge rocks and they're wearing these hazmat suits. And that was the first image for me to, to look at a product that, you know, it's so innocuous and so sweet and so soft that it's not being anything like that at all. Um, it is a it's a mineral that is mined with a lot of other toxic heavy metals, including asbestos, and that is what has led us here. Um, it's coming to find that talc in its use um, in how Johnson and Johnson promoted this product for it to be used on babies and in particular for older women or grown women for hygienic purposes, um, to put it in all parts of the body or on all parts of the body. Um, we've come to find that it is dangerous, um, both external application and Rick can talk more about the risks of inhaling it. Um, so we there are just a, a number of issues surrounding the use of talc, even if you're doing it properly and using it in the way that Johnson & Johnson intends you, for you to, um, it is a it becomes a dangerous product for a lot of users, and it has been around for over 100 years. And so um, this litigation got started in the MISO context, I think, back in 2009. Uh, in 2013, the first ovarian cancer case was tried in federal court in South Dakota, and from there, um, my the firm that I was with at the time uh, got involved with the lawyer trying the, the South Dakota case and uh, started a new front in St. Louis for multiple women. Um, multiple trials were tried there. And, um, you know, I'll let Rick pick up here, but it's just been a, the most fulfilling ride for me as a lawyer to be involved in these cases. I had been involved with talc causing meso. I think we, we may have had some cases when I was at White's and Luxembourg. So we're going back to the mid uh, or early 2000s. Um, we always knew uh, how it caused meso uh, through either inhalation or application. 
And the reason talc is like, um, or asbestos is talc fermented over time. So talc mines uh, will have these, it's almost like marbled steak. They'll have little strands of asbestos running through it. And when you mine talc, you blow it up. And then, as you know, when you blow it up, all the minerals get mixed together, all the um, different poisons get mixed together, and it's impossible to get it out. So you start at an early age, putting on the babies, they're inhaling it, and they're and it's on the genitals. So it's going in through, through two separate ways. So we were able to prove that asbestos caused mesothelioma. And then when the bird case happened in South Dakota, was it? Um, I remember emailing Mark and saying, hey, there's a whole new frontier of these cases causing ovarian cancer, not just meso, and it may be the asbestos causing the ovarian cancer as well. So that's how we got into it. We um, approached it as an asbestos case and not as like a regular products case. So it was, and then the, the, the two cases kind of merged together, ovarian through all the different minerals and ovarian through asbestos. And when we tried the case in St. Louis, we tried it as an asbestos case. Yeah, and you, you said earlier, what was that that you, the comment that you said, Rick, that um, the smell of talcum powder is it? It is, it is a more recognizable smell than chocolate. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, if you think about it, it was a staple on changing tables. Yeah. I mean, just the, the, impact is is so widespread um, well, it's worldwide and mm -hmm. j&j did a tremendous job of marketing it mm -hmm. when you you know when you leave with your newborn baby you leave with a, a sure. you know a basket of j&j products uh talcum powder baby shampoo lotion they send you home with everything and then you just continue oh. on i mean men and women use baby powder all through their lives i still you know now that there's cornstarch in it i'll still use it yeah, for sure. Yeah, in terms of is is the cultural sort of, you know, reference that you mentioned there, is that, you know, how does that sort of factor into to the case at large? Because it is such a staple in, you know, various parts of our, you know, culture. Um, do you want me to go first, Danielle, or you can go first? I'll speak to that one because I think that the cultural aspect of it was very integral in creating a very credible story um, for our plaintiffs um, to testify about their use and their practice and their habits. Um, one of the difficulties of a product case like this, as opposed to say a pharmaceutical drug or a medical device that has a sticker page, um, women who've used this product for so many years that, you know, no one keeps the receipts of how many years they've purchased powder or they may have stopped over the, the last five years and don't have a container to prove their use. So the proof is really the plaintiff's story. It is what she was taught. And that cultural aspect of it is one that reads very credible because that is the it's one I knew personally firsthand that this is usually something that a mother passes down to a daughter. A daughter will pass it down to her daughter. Um, it's part of the hygienic routine. In my house, you were not fully clean unless you had had your bath and put your powder on. And these were stories that no matter what woman we were representing, where she lived, um, what her background was, that story always 
was very much the same. And so when you hear it over and over again, it has that ring of truth and it has that ring of, we believe you because that is just what everybody can identify with. And most people, and I, I believe most Americans can identify with having some type of experience, whether they've seen their, their mother use it or was taught by their mother themselves. Yeah, the marketing documents from J&J &J indicate that they targeted Black and Hispanic women, especially um, heavier set women. Um, and that sort of targeted marketing goes to the punitive damages as well. Like you knew you had a dangerous product and you're targeting a certain community. And, and I forgot to bring up before when, when we entered this litigation for the ovarian cancer, I went on eBay and I bought bottles of J&J &J talcum powder dating back to the 50s. So we had them from every decade, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and, and the early 2000s. And we sent them to our industrial hygienist who um, did an analysis of all the samples. And when it came back with over 80% of the samples had asbestos in them. Wow. So 80% of the bottles had asbestos. Um, and we, we brought that up at trial, obviously, but that is an indication of how bad this product has been for how long it's been on the market. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you know, when at first glance, the case appears to be about a faulty product. Um, can both of you explain a little bit why the decision was made to proceed with a failure to warn claim? Failure. And on, on this one, from, from my perspective, and then Rick can talk about their, their decisions on this, just such, um, uh, just a wealth of information and documents leading back decades and decades of what Johnson & Johnson knew about their product, and um, they failed to share that. And so failure to warn just seemed a very easy, provable way um, to demonstrate their liability and their negligence in these cases and and in, intentionally in my mind. Um, you know, we go all the way back to very early on when Johnson & Johnson applied for the, the patent for cornstarch products back in the 60s. They wrote in that patent that they understood that talc could not be safely absorbed in the vagina, but that cornstarch could. And these were things that they knew when they were telling women that if you just sprinkle a day and it keeps the odor away, um, these were things that they knew um, could be very dangerous for women for long-term use and never said anything. And then in 2006, when IARC classified the perennial use of talc as a 2B human carcinogen, that warning was placed on the raw bags of talc that came from Emerus, which was Johnson & Johnson's supplier. So on the, on the um, MSDS sheets, material safety data sheets, that warning was on an occupational document that came to Johnson & Johnson, which really had no occupational reason to be there. These men were handling it, inhaling it, not putting it on their bodies like women would be. But Johnson & Johnson was getting the benefit of that warning through an IR classification 
Lyndon Johnson did not want to take that same warning and put it on the in use bottle that women are buying off of the shelves in the grocery store and at the drugstore. So this was absolutely a, it's a faulty product for sure, but it is a failure to warn case um, that can be easily proved just through the documents that we've been able to obtain in the litigation. I mean, failure to warn is always the uh, lead off allegation against the defendant. And part of it, if for those people who are from New York, there was a store there, Sims Men's Store, Sims Clothing Store, and their slogan was an educated consumer is our best customer. And in this case, an educated consumer would be their worst customer because you, what you want to do as a company is give people the opportunity to make decisions for themselves. Tell them this may cause uh, this disease or it has been proven to cause this disease. Don't hide it. That's where the failure of the warrant comes in. You want the consumer to be educated. And then the flip side of what Danielle was talking about, we always like to have a safer alternative. Like in hips, it was, you know, it, it wasn't the metal. It was the ceramic hip. As a safer alternative here, cornstarch is a known safer alternative and it should have been in the product, you know, from the very beginning. So you have the failure to warn. And on the flip side of that, you always have your safer alternative product. And, and, and Rick, as far as, you know, you mentioned, obviously, uh, you know, an educated consumer here and the, the existing plaintiffs, how far back do these injury claims go that are currently in, in the bulk of this litigation? How far back are we talking here? Well, you know, the latency period for these cancers can go back 30 or 40 years. Uh, the settlement that we just had, we were having a diagnosis from 2000 forward. But mesothelioma could be a 50, 60 late year latency period. So it goes way back. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's really horrible because you know, I was in New York during 9-11, right down the block. That's where Whites was. And you have... You know, it was 20 years ago now. You have people who are just now developing cancer from being down there. So the latency period is really um, long when it comes to meso, long when it comes to ovarian cancer, which is why Johnson Johnson eventually filed for bankruptcy. And unfortunately, on the ovarian cancer side, um, once these women start to exhibit any kind of symptom that makes them think that there might be something wrong, um, it, on times out of 10, it's too late for them. They would end up getting diagnosed at a stage three or a stage four ovarian cancer. And the prognosis rates for those diagnoses um, stages are, are very, very low. Um, most of the women die at that point, um, either through the initial cancer or because they, they get treated and then a recurrence happens or it metastasizes somewhere else. And so, um, you know, we're looking at just a very, very devastating disease that is called a silent killer because you don't know about it until it's almost too late. Yeah. And mesothelioma is a death sentence. I mean, there's, there's no, you know, there's some treatments to make it, you last a little longer, but you usually dead within two years. Um, it's very unusual to last longer than that. And it's a horrible way to die. It's like your lungs are surrounded by sandpaper. That's how painful it is. So it's one of the worst ways to die. Wow. Dan Danielle, do you know how many cases have been filed to date uh, or approximately? 
Approximately, um, there's about 38,000 cases. Um, and that is, I think we're at 38,000 in the MDL. And then there's somewhere between 25, 3,000 cases that are in state courts. Um, so, you know, and, and those are just the ones we know about. Those are the ones that are filed. There are a number of unfiled cases. And like Rick was saying, people are getting diagnosed today and they will be tomorrow. So um, we're at least 40,000 and countless more. Yeah, there's uh, 20,000 ovarian cancer cases each year. Uh, people uh, having the disease or getting diagnosed with the disease and approximately 3,000 mesodiagnosis every year. So and this is into per perpetuity right now. So, you know, in theory, it's going to keep on going for a while. When this is a, a question, I guess um, either of you, Danielle, you can you can answer it first. But, you know, when J&J &J pulled out powder from the you know, North American shelves in 2020, it was under the guise of a review, you know, and they did not claim the products were faulty. Is this, you know, in your experience, is this a normal approach? And, you know, especially if they really thought the products were safe. You know, um, it's hard to classify anything that Johnson & Johnson does as normal. Um, and I don't know that I would as normal for them for this product for this one reason. Um, Johnson & Johnson baby powder is their staple. Um, Rick alluded earlier to, you know, going back as far back over 100 years. It was one of their first products from the family company of products that we now um, all know about. But it was it was that staple product that I think defined their image, defined their um, the brand loyalty that they have amongst the consumers, um, their brand identification. If you did a man on the street type of question and answer to people walking by, if you ask them, what does Johnson & Johnson make? Nine out of 10 of them will likely say baby shampoo or baby powder. Um, so for them to take baby powder off the market because of what it means to them, not so much in sales and revenue anymore, but just what it means to them reputationally and, and the image that they built their whole family structure on, then I, I, think, I say it's very unusual for them to have made the decision. But I do think the circumstances around the litigation, um, what was happening in trials, the plaintiff verdicts, I think all of that put the writing on the wall for them that the only way they can sort of try to stop the bleeding, so to speak, is to stop people from using the product and getting new people started on it. Um, I think it was ultimately one of those decisions that they had to make. But I, I wouldn't say it's normal um, just because of how important the product was to them. But I, I do think that it was about as close as we'll see to them recognizing that there is a problem with it. I don't think they'll ever admit that. But I think that that was um, the hidden meaning behind what they what they did. Yeah, I think part of it, or maybe the main driver, was the asbestos. Everybody understands how bad asbestos is. And every day during this trial, asbestos was in the headlines. Then the huge verdict that we got, the $4.85 billion, whatever it was. And then on every news report, you're giving your baby a product that has asbestos. You're putting a product on that has asbestos. 
the easiest way for them to cut off that bad publicity was to take a hit and say, okay, we're taking it off the market or we're going to just use cornstarch products. So now you can't, because it's still sold around the world as is. You know, it's North America that where you can't get the sales. So I, I think it was a decision, uh, a calculated decision on their part to get it out of the dialogue in North America. And as Danielle said, it's very unusual for a company midstream to pull a product that they're still selling. I mean, the Viox, they took it off the market and then the litigation flood, you know, floodgates open. But this is the first time that I can remember in a long time that a product mid in midstream was pulled from the market. You know, Rick, you mentioned the obviously the the settlements um, and and the the you know the four billion. Uh, could you just speak to a little bit about sort of the effect on and litigation and sort of you know uh, will the claimants actually begin to see this money because as you know the it's stuck in appeals right now and just kind of wanted to if you could just add well, your experience surrounding that. For sure, the verdict that we got in St. Louis, the four point whatever it was, was reduced to two point one. Uh, went up on appeal. Uh, well, went up on appeal on the 4.5, whatever that was. The appellate court knocked it down to 2.1, went to the Missouri Supreme Court. They wouldn't hear it, went to the Supreme Court and they denied cert. So that case is settled and paid. The 22 plaintiffs uh, as part of that 4 billion got paid at two point, like around 2.5 billion. So that's separate and aside. You now have the remainder of the litigation where some some inventories are settled, some are not. But now, right now, everything is frozen. So, uh, and we're I know we're going to discuss the bankruptcy. But as far as the settlements are concerned, unless you were settled or had your money, right now everything is frozen and stayed. Can't hear Susan. Susan, are you muted? Yes, let's let's talk about the bankruptcy. Um, as you just alluded to, Rick, um, tell us a little bit about who is LTL Management. Um, we, we would all be interested to learn a little bit about them. OK, so uh, welcome to the Texas Two Step, which is now in the news constantly. LTL is their liability, is their talc liabilities. And what J&J did is they took advantage of a law in Texas to come here and dump all the liabilities from talc into this LTL company. Um, the, the woman who testified before Congress said you have a good co and a bad co. This is the bad co. All the liabilities are dumped into that. Um, JJCI, which is Johnson Johnson Consumer Products, um, maintained the assets and the products. They then took LTL, went to North Carolina, declared bankruptcy of that company. And as part of the bankruptcy, they asked for a stay not only on the liabilities, but also on the parent company. So you can't so you can't proceed in bankruptcy court and you can't proceed in regular court. Uh, the court ended up granting uh, the bankruptcy and granting the stay. So right now, everything is is frozen while the appeals go forward on the JJCI part, actually both parts. But Johnson & Johnson took advantage of this law in Texas and this law in North Carolina to dump all their liabilities into one company, bankrupt it, and, and, and then, you know, really, and for lack of a better term, screw all the victims of their products. And 
it's just the most infuriating thing as a lawyer representing injured victims who now have to wait probably years for any sort of resolution. And they're going to, most of them are going to die in the interim. So Johnson and Johnson, again, made a move. They're a $450 billion company, but they decided to dump all these liabilities in one and declare bankruptcy. So bad co and good co went to bankruptcy court. Now everything is stayed. I think that's it in a nutshell right now. Yeah. Yeah. Danielle, anything else you would add to that? Well, that's that's the the primer on the background. If we're getting into the why do we think this happened? Um, why do we think that the judge um, granted Johnson and Johnson's uh, petition to to institute this bankruptcy? Uh, you know, there was a, a motion. To, the plaintiffs filed a motion to dismiss um, the Johnson and Johnson for this bankruptcy, and a hearing took place. I think the week of Valentine's Day. And um, luckily, the court was nice enough to allow those of us who were not able to be there in person to watch it on Zoom. And so I made it a point to keep an eye on what was going on every day. And, you know, the things that stand out to me, um, quite frankly, the law regarding, you know, what the what the judge is analyzing in terms of why and how a, a company should be able to file bank, bankruptcy, um, the good faith argument um, is the company doing this in good faith seemed to take precedence over everything else, including things like, is there um, real financial, which, you know, in our minds, if I wanted to personally file bankruptcy, I would need to be in dire financial condition. Um, you know, most of the time we would think if a company like this wanted to do it, that fire, that, that um, dire financial condition would be something that would need to be proven. And, uh, you know, like Rick said, Johnson & Johnson is a $450 billion company. They have a credit rating that is higher than the U.S. government. Um, you know, there are just a ton of reasons why um, that just seems very intuitive that a company as large and as dominant as Johnson & Johnson can do this. But the judge's ultimate determination was that they acted in good faith. They didn't see anything that was a smoking gun on bad faith to think that this was um, not something that should get Another one of the things, and I remember sitting watching the, the hearing and in my mind, I thought if anything is gonna resonate, it's probably this. Um, Johnson & Johnson spent a lot of time arguing about, you know, plaintiffs with lottery verdicts. I probably focus group that word because you heard it nine million times. Um, there are lottery verdicts in these tout cases that, um, you know, they put up every verdict that had been tried and most of them are, a lot of them are uh, plaintiff verdicts and they put up those numbers and then they put up the number of cases and did this calculation and said, your honor, it would take us 4,000 years to try all these cases in court and just gave this very, oh, woe is me. This is too daunting. The court system isn't the place for something this voluminous for all of these women. Some of them are going to get money going to trial, but then the majority of them won't. And so this is the fair and equitable way to resolve these cases. And at the end of the day, I think Judge Kaplan looked at that as a judge and looked at it from the perspective of judicial economy and resources and all of these things 
and decided, you know, I think you're right. Um, obviously, us on the plaintiff side disagree. And I think that it was a very limited, myopic view of, of the issue here, because what I think this has done is set a precedent for companies to now just come in and not have to you know, deal with those bargain basement legal concerns about having dire financial distress. And is there an ongoing concern for the company such that if we don't do bankruptcy right now, that it will frustrate your ability to go forward? We are talking about a company that has no ongoing concern other than resolving tout cases. And then it is valued at the old value, at the, at the maximum value of what old JJ CI was valued at, which is $60 billion. So what they are telling the court is, hey, we want to trust for $2 billion, but we have up to $60 billion to resolve these cases. But they're definitely going to try to keep that as low as possible when it comes down to really talking about the value of these cases. And none of that has anything to do with them being in any kind of financial distress or that, it, um, that they are trying to you know, continue their operations or something of some other benefit that LTL is supposed to be giving. There is no other benefit. So um, I think that's a dangerous precedent going forward. And, and Johnson & Johnson has created a playbook for corporations who don't want to deal with liability to basically make a shell company, put liabilities into it and say, this is better than the tort system. And so you know, do I think every company is going to try it? No, but I do think it does give a a pathway and a platform to um, companies who are dealing with thousands and thousands of, of cases who have had cases try with multi-million dollar verdicts. Um, if if J&J can get away with it, anybody can. I, I agree with Danielle 100 percent. And I think Judge... Michael Chamber of Commerce Kaplan wrote an opinion that took every position that the Chamber of Commerce has taken as far as these liabilities are concerned. And my antenna went up because he was basically saying J&J is too big to fail. If J&J fails, you have hundreds of thousands of people who are employed there and, and their families, they're going to be impacted. So I'm going to look at the uh, the ripple effect of a bankruptcy uh, as how it affects their company. I also, what also stood out from, to me is they said, we have cases coming in one an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every single day of the year. And when you put it like that, um, it, it, it is overwhelming for a company to handle. And then they mentioned specific plaintiff firms who are still advertising for cases despite a stay and despite everything that's going on, which is really bad for us. There is a group of advertisers who are continuing to gather cases that in this case burned us big time because J&J &J came in and said, you have this firm out there still advertising, this one still advertising. Judge, how are we going to get a hold of this other than in bankruptcy? And then, as Danielle said, you know, you, you, there's only been, say, 12 or 14 trials in the last few years. If you look at 40,000 cases, there'll never be a resolution. And Judge Kaplan said, when they said, you know, you're, you're taking it out of the tort system and putting it in the bankruptcy system, 
And Judge Kaplan said, well, maybe they, all these cases should be in the bankruptcy system. Maybe it's about time we looked at the tort system. So he was, I mean, if you want to take a cold business approach, he was probably, he may have been right about the facts he was saying, but if you look at equity and the harm that's done to the, the victims, then I don't think he was, but he had to make, he had to come down on one side or the other, and he came down on the side of business, the bankruptcy courts and big corporations. What I would hope, um, especially given what Rick and I have just said about how the hearing played out, what I would hope is um, that there is, you know, let's hold Johnson & Johnson to a lot of the promises they, that they made during that hearing, which was, Your Honor, we're ready to mediate today. Um, they're ready to resolve these cases and get these women what they need. Okay, let's hold their feet to the fire on that. Um, when they say, we don't, we're just starting this um, with the settlement trust two billion, but we could go up on that. Okay, well, let's go up on that. Um, you know, if you really want resolution, then it's not just for us to get into the bankruptcy system and then allow it to just sit and then you fight about, you know, throwing pennies at this women, at these women for, for how much they've been injured. So let's let's have some meaningful conversations. I would hope that the judge will continue to press them on being speedy about this, that we get our hands around the, the universe of this and that there's still money for women who are being diagnosed today and tomorrow. Don't know, uh, you know what the cutoff needs to be. The people above my pay grade will decide that. But ultimately, um, you know, there needs to be enough in that fund for those women too. Um, just because they unfortunately didn't get diagnosed fast enough to be part of this. Um, so I think all of those things need to be taken into consideration. And I really do hope that we put as much pressure as we can um, on holding J&J accountable to the very promises and all that's on the record, what they said they were ready to do, how much they had available. Um, so let's try to do as much as we can to maximize that and to make them move on this quickly. If I had to advise the court before the decision, I would have had Judge Kaplan tell both sides, I haven't made a decision yet, J&J, &J, uh, I may toss the bankruptcy unless you put $10 billion into a settlement fund. Or plaintiffs, I may do this you know, if you don't come down in your figures. But he just right away uh, you know, threw the baby out of the bath after the bathwater by making this decision. He had leverage on both sides before he made this decision, and I wish he would have used it. Yeah, it's so disappointing. Um, that's such great information. I mean, I know, you know, a lot of the, the things that you guys just shared or, you know, the, the attorneys and teams that are reaching out to us, I mean, that, that was, you know, we just didn't have the answers to certainly appreciate that feedback. Some of the, you know, one thing that I am curious to learn a little bit is, you, know, you, you talked about, you know, um, some of these decisions. So how will this decision impact the work you're trying to do? What is your team um, going to be focused on now? And what would a successful resolution look like uh, for both of you? Uh, well, for us, I mean, it, it's a toughie that these two decisions um, have screeched us to a halt. I mean, in good faith, I can't go out and get new cases because there's a stay and that's litigating. There's a litigation stay. So in good conscience or good faith, I can't go out and get cases. I spoke to one marketer who said, Are you guys interested in towel cases? I'm like, no, there's a stay. 
And he wrote back to me, well, people are still going after him. I said, hence the bankruptcy. You know, if we all operated with integrity and honor and ethics on both sides of the V, we wouldn't run into these problems. But you have people out there still marketing for these cases where you have all these other women who are stayed and the value of their cases is going to continue to go down the more we attack this the wrong way. So I don't know what a good you know, position here is. The good position right now is to appeal these cases. Maybe let Cong Congress is already getting involved. They may legislate a, a resolution on this. But right now, it's a tough spot for plaintiff's attorneys to be in. I agree with Rick. Congress has to act here. Um, I, I, that is just a, a given. Um, and through my work with um, the American Association for Justice, I know that they are right there, um, boots on the ground, really trying to advance our interests um, where that is concerned for, for congressional action to take place here. Um, there is one thing that is not stayed in the litigation is taking depositions and preserving um, trial testimony of dying women. I would recommend that any lawyer that has these cases, just because there's a stay, don't just let the, your clients and their files and all of that just sit unattended. You need to use this time to check in on all of your clients. If they are in a dire situation, go ahead and get their testimony preserved so you can have that for posterity later um, and to help prove the issues in your case. Um, also, just, you know, now's a good time. Check to just you've done all of all of your due diligence. Um, when we do get to a point, um, if there is going to be a resolution, that is not going to be the time to scramble and get your medical records and figure out what your damages are and all of those things. Use this time wisely to make sure that you have all of the pertinent records that you need for your case. Um, get those organized. And um, hopefully, um, as it relates to appeal, I just saw an article suggesting that um, Judge Kaplan is not at this point very um, interested in designating his ruling as a final order so that the plaintiffs can appeal to the Third Circuit. He's like, I'm not sure I can even do that. Um, from the bankruptcy um, court, the traditional path is to go to the district court, which at that point, might, if, if that's the way things shake out, I believe that that would end up going to Judge Wolfson since she's in New Jersey and handling the MDL. So um, whether or not there can be an appeal and which court it would be in is um, the, the, the going question right now um, and was just reported earlier today in Law 360. So um, that's something to watch appeal. And, you know, the, the, the question we have here is, do you appeal it um, for talc? Do you appeal it for all mass torts? Um, you know, this is a big issue here. And, um, you know, I think that there are still some questions to be answered about that. How much more delay do we want for these women versus what we think would be a going concern for all mass tort lawyers in any litigation going forward from here to 
whenever in the future? Um, you know, these are some big questions that we have and some big um, issues that we really need to address and deal with. But until then, um, the one thing that can help settle this would be congressional action. And, you know, unfortunately, we've seen a very dysfunctional Congress um, in the past several years. So um, I don't have much hope on that front right now, but those that are positioned lobby our interest in that regard, they definitely are. So right now, just pay attention to your clients, take their depositions if they are um, in a dire health situation, get all your medical records in order. And, um, you know, at this point, we just, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a praying person. So I'm, I'm praying that these women get the result that they deserve sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I would just piggyback on what Danielle said, um, which is an excellent point. Get all your medical records, get all your HIPAAs, get everything. Use a company like Caseworks, get all your stuff in order, because what's going to happen if a settlement is pushed through, it's going to end up being first in, first out. So if you're ready to submit your, your cases without deficiencies, without J&J or the bankruptcy trustee or whomever, the settlement administrator says, no, you need this, you need that, you need that. You want to have everything in order so you can submit your packets fully complete and get your money for your clients. So that was an excellent point, and which is why a company like yours is just perfect for this litigation. Yeah, no, that was fantastic feedback. Um, Danielle, Rick, I mean, this has just been phenomenal. I mean, I, I've, I've learned a lot. Um, certainly appreciate both of you for taking time to connect with Dan and I and, and to share um, not only the feedback, but the updates and your suggestions. I know the attorneys that we work with event, like I mentioned, are asking questions. And I know that, you know, lots of people in the industry are trying to figure out, you know, what what are next steps? Um, and, and I totally agree. I mean, um, as things progress, you need to have all your cases in order, um, the retention policy to be able to get medical records. So not just stopping working up the cases, but having everything in order so that you're ready when the time comes. Um, thank you both so much for taking the time to, to share you. anything else before we before we sign off from this from this stream. No, I just encourage all the plaintiffs firms listening to use Caseworks. Awesome. Well, we we certainly appreciate that, Rick. Yep. Um, and and you know, there there might be some attorneys that want to reach out to you both directly. Danielle, how can how can attorneys um, reach out to you to learn more if they have um, you know questions or such? Very easy email address: dmason at milberg.com. That is easy. I'm happy to help and answer anybody's questions. Talk more about this. Talca is one of the cases that I fundamentally feel like I was meant to be a lawyer, to be a part of this. It's been a part of my life for eight years. Um, so just keep fighting the good fight. It's not over until the fat lady sings and I haven't heard her sing yet. <laughs> I, we certainly, your passion certainly comes through, Danielle, for sure. Um, Rick, what about you? How can people get a hold of you? Uh, through Bill Barfield. He's my agent. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, Richard.meadow at LanierLawFirm.com. Awesome. Well, good. Well, hey, again, certainly appreciate it. Great um, having a discussion with you guys. Certainly appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. And um, thanks for talking talk with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me.